So many of us wish we can make the world a better place, but don't know where to begin. The vision of the Love Offering is to encourage and embolden a generation to do something to manifest the better world we want to see. First, by filling ourselves up with the love of Jesus Christ, and then pouring it out to the world around us. When we hear stories of how others have loved well, where they are, with the gifts that they've been given, it inspires and motivates us to do the same. Together, we can change the world one love offering at a time in thanksgiving to God, who is the most extraordinary giver of all. Maddie Wells is an adoption social worker with Adoption Assistance Incorporated, working with adoptive families in South Central Kentucky and East Tennessee. She also is honored to work with expectant mothers in Kentucky who are making an adoption plan. Maddie and her husband of 14 years are parents to four children, two on earth and two in heaven. She is passionate about helping families find resources during difficult times of grief, loss, and trauma. Maddie feels that being a mother is the biggest blessing of her life. She enjoys making memories with her kids, exploring their interests with them, and homeschooling. Without further ado, here's Maddie. Hello, Maddie. Thank you for being my guest today. Hi, Rachel. Thanks for having me. We have been friends for years, and I was actually trying to remember, like, how we very first met. Like, I was thinking, was it Mops, or you were an ambassador for Noonday? Do, do you remember how we first met? Um, I think, the first time I think I remember meeting you is through um, through Noonday when we did If Gathering. I did speak at Mops once, but I didn't live in the same town as you at the time, so I wasn't attending regularly. But I think it was through If Gathering and Noonday. I think that's kind of how we first met. Yes, yes, I, I think you're right. And, you know, since then, I have been able to see the impact that you have had on our community firsthand. Uh, unfortunately, you have had a history of pregnancy and infant loss. Ten years ago, you lost a daughter named Shyla Joy. And actually, right around the time of this recording. And so November is sort of a, maybe a hard month from you, for you. And we'll, we'll sort of get into that as the conversation goes. But would you please share your experience with us? Uh, yeah, sure. So in 2009, um, we were pregnant with our second child. And so we already had a little boy, Ethan. Um, and then, then our daughter, we found out very suddenly on August 31st that um, her heart had stopped beating. And we didn't, at the time, we didn't know why. And so we had to actually wait two days before she could be delivered after she passed away. She was born on September 2nd. I had to have a C-section and, um, that kind of just shook our world. <laughs> we were pretty naive to the whole world of loss and, and miscarriage and stillbirth. And, um, her loss is considered a stillbirth because I was that pretty far along in our pregnancy. Um, and my son was two and a half at the time. And so for us, it was, he, he uh, kind of earth shattering. Um, our son's pregnancy, Ethan's was wonderful and beautiful and everything was normal, but then her pregnancy up to that point was too. So we uh, delivered her by C-section and we had her funeral a couple of days later. And then throughout the weeks, so we had a lot of testing done on me to kind of figure out what had gone on. And we found out that I have a blood clotting disorder and um, it had contributed to her not being able to get everything that she needed. So she had passed away. Um, so her name, Shyla Joy, means creative joy. And so through that, we really kind of focused on finding creative ways to bring joy through the rest of our year. And so we tried to help our son see um, the hard part of loss, but also how it can help other people. And so after she had passed away, we of course had a nursery full of little girl things, beautiful little pink dresses and everything. And we donated all of that stuff for a couple of reasons, because we wanted to help people. And we also did not want to see it anymore in our house. And so we donated a lot of our stuff to a crisis pregnancy center and they were so kind and they put little stickers on everything that said it was donated in her memory and kind of fast forward a little while later, I started volunteering there and found some of those things still and would see when mamas would pick it up for their babies. And so, um, throughout that experience of just her loss, we saw the hardest part of life. There was a lot of really dark times. And then we saw the beauty of being able to reach out to other people and not letting that hold us back from, um, trying to comfort people in losses, but also comfort people that did not have everything that we had. 
you know, along those same lines, after Shyla passed away, you did something that I think is so amazing. You actually began collecting care packages to give to other mothers who would also deliver a stillborn baby. So how did you see God bless your offerings? We, um, in 2009, blogging was like, the big thing everybody did. And so um, I had started blogging shortly after I lost because I had met several other women around the country that had had lost. And so one of the ways that we saw just connecting with other women and being able to share our stories and comfort in a way that only we understood, because going through that, there's not any other kind of loss like that. You know, you unfortunately expect someday you will lose your parents, um, possibly a, a spouse, but you don't really think you'll lose a child. And so there's this whole little group of us that really connected and bonded. And so we found different ways to remember each other's babies. And then the care package idea kind of came about with a group of us in different cities around the country. And we started putting together packages that had everything I wish I would have had in the hospital mm-hmm. because no one like tells you how to plan a baby's yeah. funeral. Mm-hmm. And so it had like a funeral planning guide in it. It had information about when your milk comes in, how to help ease that discomfort because the doctor's really do all they can, but there's not much information about that out there. Um, And then um, two of the same teddy bears. So if you wanted to, you could leave one with your baby when it's taken away by the funeral home and you could keep one. So it had different little things in it like that. Um, Nursing pads from when the milk did come in. And I saw women, um, a few women reached out to me afterwards because I did leave my email address in there. And I got to go to the homes of a couple of these women and just sit and cry and talk and listen and um, help them understand that their baby's life was precious and it was meant something and that um, just kind of be with them in their grief. Cause you know, that's kind of what God <laughs> tells us to do is to comfort mm-hmm. others with the comfort we had been given. And so when we were being comforted by God, we kind of just said, how can we do this for other people in a practical way? And some of that was just the stuff in the care packages. And some of it was just sitting with mothers when they needed someone to be with them. One year after Shyla passing away, you also lost a, a son, Jake and Isaac. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, it's impossible for me to fathom losing one child, let alone two. So would you tell us about your second experience with loss? Um, yeah. So Jake and um, our doctors had originally said for to wait, you know, at least a year because of the C-section, you get my body time to rest and heal and then just emotionally time to rest and heal. Um, so we did, we were able to get pregnant again with our, our son and, um, his very first ultrasound, we were told that I was going to miscarry at first and that did not happen. That did not, (laughs) he was very strong. He came back fighting after that and everything was great until I was about 17 weeks um, pregnant. We went to the ultrasound to figure out, you know, boy or girl. Um, and we had already named him Jake and we knew he was a boy. We just kind of had a gut feeling because, at that first ultrasound, when our doctor said, I'm sorry, this is a miscarriage, um, we said, nope, no, it's not. His name is Jakin, and Jakin means God will establish. It was one of the names of the columns in front of the temple. It was called Jakin. So we called him Jakin from the very beginning. But um, so at 17 weeks, we found out that his heart had an arrhythmic, um, very fast rhythm. It was beating at like 350 beats a minute. And then he would have um, a tachycardia event, and then it would start beating again. So... The doctors prescribed all the medications they could to try to help regulate his heart rate. And they tried to, um, we got a referral to a pediatric cardiologist who monitored him in the womb. Um, but unfortunately, after about two weeks, his little heart just could not hang on anymore. And so he passed away at about 19 weeks. And because I was just 19 weeks, not any further along, I did have to have a, a vaginal delivery and had him um, on the day before Thanksgiving in 2010. So he was um, very tiny, but he was perfectly formed. We could hold him in the palm of our hands, basically, and he was just perfect. And so we were able to then kind of look around, like, how are we here again? We were in a little bit of a shock, but also we took comfort in the fact that we kind of knew how to move forward. We knew what the next steps were. We had unfortunately had practiced with our son, and so he kind of remembers all of this process again, and he, he has some memory now of funerals and and things like that and so he is one of the most compassionate kids that I've ever met and I think his early losses really kind of contributed to that but Jaken was um, when I was in the hospital with him they actually brought me one of the care packages that I had created (laughs) and Mm -hmm. another mom had 
a mom had made these that had went through something similar. And I said, I just kind of asked them, you can, you can take that out. It's okay. And they were scared. They had offended me. And I said, no, no, I'm the one that, that made those save that for another mom. I have all that. Wow. Wow. And so the nurse was kind of speechless <laughs> at that moment. And she didn't really know what to do, but I said, you know, I would rather help another mom. And we kind of went down this road before we know that there's going to be a time of grief. I know, I know all the stuff that I kind of need, but it was so, his birth was so different because hers was so peaceful and calm. Honestly, being a C-section, everything was calm and quiet. And um, the OR is a very sterile, quiet place. Everyone was very respectful. And um, I could not have any pain medication with his delivery. And I still dilated to 10. I had to deliver him um, in call. So the whole, everything was delivered at once. And it was just a totally different experience. And so um, I said, if I've never felt God closer in the room as her delivery and never felt him as far away as his. So mm-hmm. they were very opposite experiences. So um, when we left the hospital with him and the next day was Thanksgiving, I actually had my Thanksgiving meal in the hospital, um, little styrofoam to go boxes. <laughs> they sent me home oh. with her. Um, but we, we had his funeral and his experience kind of left me whirling. I knew what to do with her loss. I knew I could help people, but I, for a long time, I didn't know how, how God was going to use a second one. Like this is our, we've already reached people. Why did we need to go? Right. Right. Like this doesn't make sense. So I didn't really know what to do, but I knew I needed to do something. And so we put together a resource library for our local funeral home and um, put books and resources and talk to our funeral home director about how to um, better help women who want to have um, services for children that young because 19 weeks in Kentucky is considered a miscarriage, not a stillbirth. And so they, we don't really even have a birth certificate for him um, because he wasn't considered a child at that point. Um, And so we still wanted to have a funeral. One week would have made a difference between his life being recognized or not. And so we still had a funeral and um, I remember our funeral home director just saying, you know, don't feel bad. I've had women when I have funerals for children, much younger, you know, and very tiny. Um, But I said that I don't feel bad. This is what I need to do to honor his life. You know, it wouldn't have made a difference for me a week from now or not. And so we kind of gave some more resources to our funeral home and they have a whole little memorial library in his name now. And so they have different books on all kinds of loss. And um, anyone who visits there can, you know, have any of the books and resources that are there. So we wanted just to do something in his memory. And then Christmas time was so close. We also did a stocking, ask all our friends and family to do random acts of kindness in our baby's memories. And we had little stockings that we filled up with all their, their memories and went through and read them on Christmas Eve. And so we had people that donated to Samaritan's Purse. We had people that, um, donated to various different charities or did acts of kindness for a widow that was a neighbor. We had all different kinds of things that brought us a little bit of um, a little bit of a smile on Christmas because that was happening because of, of their lives. It amazes me that in your loss and in your pain that your reaction was to give. Um, and that's one of the reasons I love and admire you so much. Um, but I'm interested to hear about more, more how this grieving process looked like for you then and what it still looks like for you now. Yeah. Um, at the beginning, the, the hardest months I have to say were between finding out that Shyla had passed and when she was born. So we had an ultrasound on the 31st. And so we went home that night. I was still carrying her that night and the next night and just knowing what was coming. And it kind of felt like there was, I knew, I consciously knew there was like a before and after period in my life. It was before I knew how hard this was and then after. And so those two nights were just the darkest. There wasn't a lot of sleep. There was a lot of reading. Um, I don't know if anyone's picked up on it. If you know the Enneagram, I am a five with a four. So I was just reading constantly about how did other women survive this? And and how do you plan a funeral? And how do you, um, what what's my baby going to look like? She'd already been passed away for a few days now. Like I was terrified of what that was going to be like. And so the grieving at first was just, um, trying to cope what was physically happening and then after that it was okay how do I help my son process this in the best way possible to let him be sad and let him understand but also show him what heaven is and what um, we believe the bible says about the death of a baby and so walking my son through that was um, a learning process 
because I wanted him to know it was okay to be sad, but I didn't want him ever to be mad at God about anything. And so we took our time to kind of help him process and ask him what he thought about things and really insulated our family for a little while to process and heal because the C-section is not a, you know, it's a major surgery. (laughs) And so I had to heal myself, which is good for me because I needed that time by myself first Mm -hmm. before I could go out and do anything for anyone else. And so I think the hardest part of the grieving was there for a long time was seeing other babies. It was just physically painful. Um, After you lose a baby, you have what they call phantom kicks where you still feel like you're pregnant. And so some of that was just really emotionally draining to constantly remember what should have been, what felt like should have been. And so once I got through the physical part and insulating our family for a little while, something just kicked in in me where, okay, now I have to do something. And so that's when everything started coming together with the care packages and and talking. And I was asked to speak at a a, a banquet for um, a pregnancy center and really kind of putting action to the steps helps me. That's how I process things. Because if not, the opposite would be I never went anywhere or did anything <laughs> because I like kind of being comfortable. Yeah. Uh, so once I got motivated to start doing those things, it really helped me to see that I wasn't alone and that it could be used. Not that's why it happened. I don't believe that that's why it happened, but that I, I could use it for something good to help other women feel not alone. Because that was one of the biggest parts of my healing process was to know I wasn't alone. Because even though my husband and I had went through the same thing, men and women typically grieve very different ways. And so to know other women that had been there or that I could walk along beside, beside another woman who needed someone to talk to um, made me feel less alone and also made me feel like something good could come of this. And that's kind of how I, I cope. Um, so as the years go on, the way that we kind of dealt with our grief was every year on her birthday and on his birthday, I do remember them in some way, big or small. The first few years, it was kind of bigger donations or bigger, you know, we even had a little get together with cake on her first birthday, um, which is the same day, like right after I found out I was having Jake in and we thought we were miscarrying. We had a little birthday thing with our family and close friends just to say, look at all God has done in the past year. You know, we went from this place to this place and, and look at everything, look at what's flourished in the desert. And so that was important. And then now more, it's just to, for me to remember, their lives and to remember that this, it almost feels unreal 10 years later to think, wow, we went through all of that in 14 months time. We went through all of that. And so now it's just more about just honoring their lives and honoring what God did through their lives and um, our family. And so I have uh, Christmas tree ornaments that have all of our babies' names written on their stockings. It's a little ornament that has everyone's names. And someone once asked me, why in the world would you do that? That would just make me sad to look at it. Right. (laughs) said, well, yeah. I'm thinking about them anyway. <laughs> it's not that that reminds me, oh, yeah, I had two babies. Like, they're all already on my mind. And so that just kind of honors their place in our family. And, you know, well-meaning, you know, little old ladies in Walmart would ask my son when he was, you know, four, five, why don't you have any siblings? You need a brother or sister. And he would say, I have two brothers. I have a brother and sister. And, and, <laughs> and you know, just letting him know, too, validating what you remember is right. And that you do have a brother and sister and, you know, our experiences did happen and they are still a part of our family, even though they're not here. So that, uh, that helped process our grief later on. And now it's more simple things because it has been, you know, 10 and nine years almost that we just kind of remember together as a family. We may go to the cemetery and make sure that their rocks are all clean and their flowers look nice and um, just visit them a couple of times a year where we used to go a little bit more often just for ourselves. You've, you've mentioned Ethan quite a few times. And so um, I'm wondering, you know, how did he respond to these losses? Like, do you have advice for, well, maybe answer that first, but then maybe advice for um, mothers walking through trying to help their children that are living mourn the loss of their children that aren't. Um, for Ethan, he was actually in the room when we found out Shala had passed. Um, so he saw me probably at one of my worst moments of my life, but he was two and a half. I don't think at that point he understood what was going on. Um, I had a big belly and he knew we were having a baby. So we knew it was something we had to talk about. Uh, and not just because I'm his mother. Other people have told me this a lot. He's a very mature kid. He kind of always has been. And he 
um, understood a lot of things. I think that other, my daughter would not have understood it two and a half. Our daughter now would know, but he, he understood we were side. He understood we had a baby and now we don't. And so we did at, at her funeral, we did a little balloon release and he wanted to be the one to release them. He said he knew why we were doing it. And he, when he let go of the balloons, he waved at him and he said, bye-bye shall I'll see you later. And so he, um, when I asked him what he meant, he's like, you know, in heaven, like he was just so matter of fact and it wasn't anything ever scary to him. He, I come from a pretty large family and unfortunately we had been into the funeral home a few times in his life already. And several times after that with great aunts and uncles, and he was starting to understand a little bit more about death and grieving. And it wasn't anything we ever wanted to shy away from or protect him from because it's part of life. And we felt like he could handle it. So he was at the funeral home with us and he, you know, was at the cemetery with us. He understood all of that. And then kind of the same thing when we lost Jake and um, he knew we were pregnant. He knew we were having a baby and then he knew we weren't. And so for him at the time, I think the biggest part was answering any of his questions as honestly as I could. And if I didn't know the answer, I always told him, I'm sorry, mommy just doesn't know. But what do you think? And then when he would share what he thought, I kind of got more of a glimpse into how his brain worked, how he was processing things. And so for him, when he wanted to buy something to take to the cemetery around Memorial Day, we still always decorate down in the South. <laughs> and, you know, we decorate all the graves. He, if he saw something he wanted to take to the cemetery, we took it. If he saw something he wanted to buy because it reminded him of her, we got it. Um, her rock has a little dragonfly on it. And that's kind of been the symbol that we associate with her for a lot of reasons. But if he saw a little dragonfly garden decoration, you know, and he would say, oh, this would be pretty at her, at her grave. And okay, we'll get that buddy. And so we've just really let him take the lead on a lot of things. And then also use that as an open door to talk about being kind to people. Um, we knew someone that had lost someone and they, their response, they were just very, and everyone grieves different, but they were pretty angry for a while and he just couldn't understand that. And so when I explained more about people grieve in different ways and when they've lost something very close and precious to them, Sometimes their brain and body just don't know how to react. And sometimes people go angry and some people go quiet and some people cry. So we just explained more about how grief is handled differently. And, and for him, I think it's really just helped him become a very compassionate kiddo. Um, and he always has taken prayer very seriously and he's always taken caring for other others very, very seriously. And I think that's come out of what he went through as a kid and what he um, saw other people other people care for us and let's try to care for ourselves as a family too. How did your faith get you through all these traumatic times? I've always said, I don't know how someone can get through it without the hope of heaven. Mm -hmm. From the second, I know for me and for many of the moms I've talked to from the second you find out you're pregnant, you kind of mentally have a life with this child forever. And so it's not that you plan what school they're going to go to or what their career is going to be, but you always know their presence is going to be in your life. And so knowing that while I don't get that here, there's the hope of heaven. I, it helped me process the finality of the loss here on earth. Um, because when you lose a child of, of any age from talking to a lot of different moms and families, it's, it's not just the death of right now, it's the death of a whole future. And so while you know you don't have that, if you have the hope of heaven, it's a little glimpse of um, what could be, what will be. And so that was very helpful to us. And then also knowing that if you read through the Bible, there are so many examples of people that went through losses and trials. And there's never a promise that says, just because you love me and you're a Christian doesn't mean you're going to go through these things. It actually promises us the opposite. <laughs> so we felt like we were in good company with those in the Bible. <laughs> um, the people that went through so many losses and so many trials and um, it, it just helped us know that this is not anything that we should not talk about. A lot of people, it, it used to be something taboo. Nobody ever talked about miscarriage or infant loss because it's something that just happened so frequently back years and years ago. It's just part of life. You just move on. And I think for us, it gave us permission to talk about it more because, because of the word of our mouth and our testimony, we can affect others and we can lead them to, to Christ. And so we thought the more we talk about how we got through those times and we don't ignore the fact that it was hard, but that's why we need Jesus is because the world is hard. Mm -hmm. uh, it just really helped our faith get really deeply rooted in that time. And I feel like I've watched families go through such hard things. And this is one of those things 
infant loss that will either send you spiraling out of control or really deeply root you in the word. And I think it did that for us. It really just kind of made us closer as a family. Um, and me and my husband, we were like, if we've got through that, we can get through, <laughs> we can get through anything. And so for our faith to have that foundation of faith and to know what we could lean back on. And even the days where I didn't feel like I could read the Bible, I didn't want to read. I did not want to read the story of Job. Job really bothered me <laughs> for a long time. Yeah. It was like, he did nothing wrong and he didn't, you know, it was just like a bet of who's better, you know, and to hear like he lost everything, but he got everything back except for his children because he would get them back in heaven. So everything he got back double except for children. He just got seven kids. He didn't get 14 back because he could not replace the spirits and souls of those he lost. And so to get, know that that was another acknowledgement, we will get our children back in heaven in some way, shape or form and that our brains can't comprehend. And so to lean back on that faith was very important to us at the time and now. How did people love you well in these seasons? Um, I think a lot of people didn't know how to love us at all, honestly. Yeah. They were so um, if it's not something you've walked through, people are so afraid they're going to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. So a lot of people really gave us space, which was something good for me. I would rather someone just say, I'm sorry, than say something inappropriate. We heard several inappropriate comments. Um over the, the past few years. Um, but one way was to always remember our babies and say their names, um, especially early on to validate their lives. And, you know, we live in a, as a church community, we are living in a pro-life community and we, um, we want to validate the lives that are in the womb, but when they're lost, no one knows how to handle it. And so people were very nervous to say something or to do something. And, for a long time, I would just have to encourage them. It's okay to say their name. It's not, again, like you're going to remind me that I had this child that I don't have. Like, it's just reminds me that their life was real and important. And um, the first year after when we lost Shala on her first birthday, my sister-in-law sent me flowers on her birthday. And that was the first time I think someone outside of the group of moms that I knew through the blogging world, that we all were very close and recognizing each other's children and loss that someone had really reached out to say, I'm thinking of you. Um, and it was, it was very impactful. And I, I still tell her, she still includes them on everything. My sister-in-law, at any time that she does something with our family, she'll make a notation of like, I remember your babies on this day or October 15th is pregnancy and infant loss remembrance day. And she always remembers them. And so it's kind of splits their birthdays right, <laughs> they're right down the middle in October. So having someone remember, and I had a couple of other friends that, around their birthdays, they always just send me a private note, you know, and say, I'm thinking of you, I'm thinking of them, or families that um, interested us when another loved one had lost a baby. I've gotten, I've gotten so many messages throughout the year that says, you know, my cousin lost a baby, can you please talk to her? You know, she wants to someone to talk to, or um, unfortunately, one of my dear friends from high school, middle, elementary school, middle school, and high school lost a baby, and I went to the hospital to visit with her and she was in the same room I had delivered Jake in mm -hmm. and went in her rooms, but spent time with her and her baby and was able to be there for her because someone else had said, Hey, I don't know if you knew this, but this is what's going on. And so other people reaching out to us and entrusting us with their friend, loved ones in their time of grief um, has meant a lot that they trust us with that because it's a very sacred place to be invited into. In 2012, you made a decision to adopt. Would you share Ellie's story with us? I will. Um, Ellie's story actually, our adoption story actually started in 2011. We started our adoption process then. Um, we started our process to adopt from South Korea. So we had an international home study done. Um, South Korea um, was a very stable country in the world of international adoption at the time. They had been the same for 40 years. And that year, they kind of flipped everything upside down and put everything on hold. And so we were waiting with South Korea for um, a little over a year. And when we were asked to talk with a um, friend of a cousin that was pregnant and wanted to make an adoption plan and asked if we would consider domestic adoption, adopting within the U.S., uh, we said we would meet with her. We fell in love with her and we switched all our paperwork to do a domestic adoption. And we were just kind of shook by the whole experience of domestic adoption. It's not anything we thought we would do in the beginning. And so we fell in love with her and we loved that baby. And she decided to parent after he was born. And so we were heartbroken, but so proud of her because we knew she was going to be a good mom. And 
went went on with our weight with Korea. So everything had kind of put on hold for a little bit, and then we just started up our weight with Korea. But because we had done all our domestic paperwork, that following year later in um, November of 2012, uh, got an email from our agency that we worked with, and I had just started working as a social worker with them after our failed adoption, that there was a little girl that had been born that needed some, a mom and dad, and, you know, here's her picture, here's what's going on, and who would, uh, would want to um, be open to this. So I kind of jokingly asked my husband, do you want to go to North Dakota today? And he was like, what? <laughs> I, I told him, he's like, uh, I mean, put our names in there. I don't know if we qualify for that. And I said, I don't know either, but we'll figure it out. And so I just emailed our boss, that my boss that morning. And I said, you know, I don't know if our paperwork is all current on this. I think it is. And long story short, 24 hours later, we were on an airplane to North Dakota. <laughs> and so um, I should back up a little bit and say that Ethan, had prayed for this specifically. Um, on Monday, November 5th, he prayed that we would have a baby by Sunday or Monday. And he said, mom, you got to get the nursery ready. Our baby's coming. You have to do this. Like he was so serious about it. And it just broke my heart because we got a letter from Korea, our agency with Korea saying it was going to be at least another year. And so we thought, well, we will just see what happens. Bless his heart. God, why are you doing this to him? He's been through so much loss. And I did not have the faith he had because he just knew. Um, she was born the next day. We found about her about her on Friday, and we got to her on Sunday. So just wow, like, yeah, That's he incredible. Had, he stayed always stayed in the main service at our church and didn't go to kids' church for a long time when he was little. And we he we allowed it. He said still he was perfect. And our pastor had just been talking about Mark batterson's book the circle maker about bold specific prayer and he had went to his room and he had prayed his bold prayer and he had every belief in the world it was coming true and so um when we got to north dakota it took two days because there was a blizzard and a grounded planes and rental cars and it was a we could have made a movie over <laughs> our trip to north dakota um but when we got to her and held her for the first time she was five days old and she looked up, up at us and smiled and we were just, that was it. Like we were into this no matter what. And so everything went actually really smoothly from there. So it was an almost two year process from when we first decided to adopt to when we brought her home. Um, but in our time in North Dakota, we got to meet her birth family and just have a huge love for them. And we got to experience a little bit of North Dakota winter, which I don't care if we have <laughs> very, very cold and lots of snow. Um, but we got home the night before Thanksgiving. Our son had prayed that we would be home for the holidays and everyone said it was impossible. And we got the last flight out and we got home at 1130 at night, the day before Thanksgiving. And so we, um, he stayed up late that night, obviously, because he had stayed home with my mom during our travel. And he, we heard him through the walls when we pulled up to the house. Thank you, Jesus, they're home. And he was just jumping up and down. And I don't even think we made it all the way to the couch in the living room he just like sat down on the floor and said give me the baby basically oh, so sweet over the moon excited and so our um our adoption process altogether was about two years but from the time we saw her face um until we finalized went very very quickly and so um her name is arabelle it means an answer to prayer but we call her ellie well so you just mentioned quite a few god wins <laughs> but um during the whole adoption process, you had many others. So would you share some of those Godwings with us? Oh, yeah. Um, just even traveling to North Dakota, as I had mentioned before, in 2009, I had been blogging and connecting with other women that had losses. And so when we were on our way to North Dakota and our flight got canceled, we made it to Minneapolis. We were supposed to get all the way to Bismarck. Our flight got canceled because the worst first blizzard of the year had happened. Nothing was getting in and out of Bismarck. We ran down to the counter, we rented a car, we got on the road, we drove as far as we could till they shut the interstates down and we had to find a hotel. Um, a friend back home, without us knowing, had just put out a post on Facebook and said, um, this is what's going on, they're <laughs> trying to find a place to stay, I'm going to help them find it, anybody that wants to help with their hotel. So all these strangers just like donated 5 and $10, they paid for us to have a hotel because we were just kind of figuring this out as we went because... We had less than 24 hours notice. Um, the next morning we got on the road. So strangers helped us there and carried us through that night. So we were just very thankful. Um, the, the airlines had lost our luggage. And so when we left 
Lexington, it was 70 degrees. And when we got to North Dakota, it was seven. <laughs> we had no coats. We had no winter boots. It was all in our luggage um, that was lost at the time. And so a blogging friend of mine got on Facebook, kind of put out a call. Do I know anyone in North Dakota? And so we got connected with someone who lived in Fargo who met us on the side of the road at a Starbucks and said, we just bagged up all of these coats and gloves and hats to take to Goodwill um, because we've got new ones for this year and we hope these fit you. And we met at Starbucks and kind of were going through this bag and putting on these coats and everything. And we just started laughing hysterically, basically. And this woman that I had just met from blogging was like, I don't know what just happened, but on the way there, just trying to distract ourselves. My husband and I had talked about, you know, what do we want to get each other for Christmas? What's on our wish list? Like, let's just talk about something else because we just need to get there. And my husband had mentioned he would kind of like a double line North Face jacket or a specifically a Hunter Green Columbia fleece. He wanted a certain kind of coat. Both of those coats were in that bag that were his size. No. <laughs> and so we, <laughs> he bundled up and I bundled up and we had hats and gloves. She brought us everything we needed. And so we could go on through warmly and safely into the blizzard. And so we just laughed that that was so, such a big God wink. Like, here you go. I'm going to take care of you every step of the way. Um, so when we were getting ready to leave the state, we, again, you don't know. And when you're doing domestic adoption, you have to stay in the state of birth until you get permission to fly home by both states. So you kind of know it may be this day or this day, but you're not really sure. And because of the holidays, we had been told people usually leave for Thanksgiving on that Wednesday. And they don't get back to the following Monday. So we knew our paperwork had been submitted on Wednesday. And we were sitting there with all of our luggage packed, just waiting on permission to come home, hoping we would get home. And I get a call from a friend of mine who said, there's this person I don't know, but they know a friend of mine. So a friend of a friend. He's a businessman that flies all the time. He wants to donate all his sky miles to get you guys home. Mm. And I was like, that's so precious. Like we were, we couldn't book a flight because we didn't know. And he said, but he has to book it today. And we were like, we don't, we don't know if we're even going to get to leave. So he called and then he said, well, the day before Thanksgiving is the only blackout date, but I'm going to call Delta. And so this guy, I still don't know his name. He called Delta. He worked some kind of mag- magic and booked us the last two seats on both flights home. And said, I booked them for today, so just pray you get you get home. And about 30 minutes later, we got approval, and we had about 20 minutes to get to the airport and get on our flights. And so just one thing after another kept lining up for us to do exactly what basically Ethan had prayed for, and everyone was praying for us to get home. Um, but just the generosity of people that we had never met, and um, just getting to see God's goodness through strangers that I felt like was just showering us in goodness that we had no idea where it was coming from because we really blindly said yes to the whole process we were we don't know how we're going to get there or how we're going to get home but we'll figure it out and so God just really provided every single step of the way every little thing we needed um and you know she was a little bit sick when she was first born and she had pneumonia and some other things and the doctor said you know you're probably going to be in the hospital for you know two or three weeks she was discharged within 10 days perfect health and so he just really provided every little thing we needed. Um, the Ronald McDonald house housed us there even after she was discharged from the hospital because we needed a place to stay till we went home. And they were like, yes, stay here. So we got had a kitchen we could cook in and we had lovely people that just came and, you know, spent time with us and blessed us with gifts. And we went home with so many baby blankets and like everyone just really we felt like we had family everywhere we went there. It was very, very just mind boggling how awesome everyone was to us. Wow. I'm, I'm almost speechless at <laughs> your stories and the goodness of God and his provision and, and all because you said yes and were obedient. And um, uh, it just gives me so much hope in, in my faith walk. And I, and I know it will for listeners too. So um, I'd, I'd like to hear what has been, um, in your opinion, the biggest blessing of adoption? Um, gosh, that's, that's a hard question. I know. Yeah. So many, like even just from the first experiences of how other people really cared and really wanted to be a blessing to us, um, all the way through to now, just understanding the blessing of family and how different families are formed. And you would never ever know there was any difference in my two children they feel like I mean they are siblings they've been siblings since birth they are just 
watching them play together is something that for a while we didn't know if we would ever have. We thought we were going to have, and it, we never pictured ourselves with only one child, even though he's very awesome. We <laughs> figured we would have several kids. And so getting to watch, have two kids play together and even fight sometimes and just having their relationship and being able to witness that has probably been the biggest blessing of the whole process. What about one of the biggest challenges that you have faced? Um, I think probably some of the biggest challenges has just been other people's perceptions and opinions of adoption and a lot of negative views that we didn't know we were going to encounter and mm-hmm. having to feel like there's this really strong balance between sharing what an awesome thing adoption is and honoring the grief and process and loss adoption is and also people's biases against it and then handling unfortunately some very um, uncomfortable views on race and um, discrimination and um, 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 some, some racism against um, our child and other families that were close with an adoption really I knew racism was still alive and well in existence, but seeing how young it starts against children has been a a little bit of a shock and a privilege that I had as a white person not to have to encounter until I was older in life. And seeing that against young children has been probably one of the hardest parts, but adoption has opened the door for me to be um, a participant in seeing this when otherwise I wouldn't have had my eyes open maybe. Well, you are now a social worker for Adoption Assistance. It's a Kentucky and Tennessee nonprofit child placing agency. Would you tell us, just so we are informed, what are some current statistics relating to children in need of being adopted both domestically and internationally? Sure. Yeah. So statistics kind of vary depending on who is gathering them, of course. Right. general consensus that um, there's several different kinds of adoption. So I'll just kind of start with foster care is that there's about 400,000 children in foster care. And of that, there are about 100,000 children waiting to be adopted. So these kiddos have already been in foster care long enough that their parents' rights have been terminated. So their biological parents' rights have been terminated and they're legally available for adoption right now. So there is a website that has a listing of all these kids and um, most of them, the average age is seven years, seven months. So there are a lot of older kids. There are a lot of younger kids with some pretty severe medical needs because these children to get on this waiting list um, were not adopted by their foster family have no available friends that are family members or fictive kin that can adopt them. And so they are just waiting in the system right now. Um, Of that, there are several, let's see, 30,000 kids. Yeah, 30,000 kids every year age out of foster care, meaning they turn 18 without a home base. They have nowhere to call home. They don't have anywhere to fall back on. And so there's a big need for mentors for these kids or families that are willing to adopt older kids because they may have been in foster care for quite a while before they're available to be adopted and then they're teenagers. And that's just honestly a hard demographic to work with because families are really scared and they shouldn't be scared of adopting teens, but 30,000 kids a year age out of the foster care system that could be adopted. Um, So those, those numbers kind of came from a couple different places like orphan care Alliance show hope. And then the state of um, Kentucky, I looked at their website. So, domestic adoption is another option. And so this is where biological families voluntarily relinquish their rights and place their children for adoption for various reasons. So of in the United States, there are about um, 135,000 children that are adopted a year. And so 59% of that is from foster care, 26 is international adoption, and 15% are voluntarily relinquished children. So that's the difference between the different kinds of adoption. Um, what's really crazy is you, once you enter the adoption world, you kind of see it everywhere, (laughs) but before you do, it's hard to, to know because sometimes children look exactly like their adoptive families and you, you notice it more in an international adoption or a transracial adoption, but nearly a hundred million Americans have adoption in their immediate families. So that's a lot of families that adoption has touched. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. And right now, um, only about 2% of Americans have actually adopted, but they're, the survey's general consensus is that about one-third of Americans have considered it, but not actually taken the leap. So um, for international adoptions, unfortunately, those numbers have dropped a lot over the last several years. In 2018, there were 4,058 adoptions um, internationally into the U.S. 
they're about split between male and female. And then the average age of those kids, the highest number of ages of those kids is between five and 12 years old. So these are not, you know, infants. These primarily aren't teenagers. The average age is kind of that five to 12 year old. Um, But considering how many kids came home to the U.S. last year, 4,000, there are anywhere between 143 and 210 million orphans worldwide. Mm. That number varies between if you're counting, if these children are true orphans where both of their parents have passed away or not many children in orphanages have living parents. So that is one of the reasons I think anyone who supports adoption needs to be on board with family preservation and ministries that support family preservation, because there's a quote I just read recently that says, you know, why do we need to keep pulling people out of the river when we could go upstream and see why they're falling in? Uh, And so preservation is such a huge part of the orphan crisis. If we could prevent a child from having to go into an orphanage in, in the first place, we could stop the problem before it happened. So I really think um, while I have the platform to speak on adoption, family preservation should be one of the top things that we try to support. Um, so uh, international adoption has decreased by se- at least 77% since 2004. I think now that was an older statistic. I think it's been higher than that because many, many countries that were open to international adoption have closed their doors and um, domestic adoption within other countries, we don't really have statistics on. Most countries, it's generally pretty low. So once children enter into orphanage care or institutionalized care, that's where they stay until they are kicked out at the age of 13 to 16. Wow. This is all really good information for us to know and be aware of. Um, and, And something that you have said before is that every adoption starts with loss and trauma. So what leads you to say this? Um, In a perfect world, every child would get to stay with their biological mom and their biological dad. Um, Unfortunately, in this world that is not perfect, things happen and children are either orphaned when we're talking about international adoption, primarily they're orphaned where both parents have died to illness, poverty, a number of things could have happened. Um, They are also or they are abandoned due to certain countries that have one child policies, which um, have been changing in a lot of countries or they have such strong poverty in their area that they can only care for one child. And so children are abandoned. That's a loss and a trauma. Um, Children in foster care that are available for adoption have been in the system for an average of 20 months. And so they have been in foster care long enough that their parents have tried to work a case plan and have an opportunity to regain parental rights or their parents have voluntarily decided to relinquish rights at that time. And so these children have already been in foster care, which is a trauma in itself because you have been removed from your primary home. Even if the primary home was dysfunctional in some way, that's all the child knew. And it's a trauma to be separated from that place of birth. Um, And then even domestic newborn adoption. There's no child that's pledged for adoption where there's not some kind of crisis or trauma involved. So mothers that are choosing to make an adoption plan during pregnancy have a reason for that. And most of them, it is some kind of trauma. It is domestic violence. It is poverty. It is um, drug involvement. It could be one of many, many reasons. And so from the womb, the child could have effects from that. And at the very least, research shows that separation from a birth parent. So a birth mother who has grown this child for nine months and delivered it, the birth parent's voice is already something the child recognizes because the cortisol levels in the brain go down. So the stress hormone in the brain goes down in the newborn when he hears his mother's voice. And so the statistics that we've recently saw is that if they don't hear that voice in 72 hours, their cortisol levels go up and they stay up. So these little babies are chronically stressed out. And so one of the things that we say for, you know, domestic newborn adoption is to open adoption is a wonderful thing. And the primarily now, I think um, most adoptions are considered like 60 to 70% are considered open or semi-open adoptions where there's contact and relationship with the birth family. And that's just for the benefit, I mean, for everyone involved, but primarily the child who's not always going to be a child. And so if we can help ease the transition of trauma from one placement to another, from one caregiver to another, the long-term effects on this kid are just the, it's, it's a smoother transition. And so there's trauma in one way or another. We've got prenatal trauma, we have early childhood trauma, and we have the trauma of death of a parent. So any time a child can't be with their biological parents, there's a trauma and a loss involved for that child. Well, and, and so the results of those trauma, of that trauma on the little hearts and minds can last for a long time. 
And a lot of adoptive parents have had to fight for their hearts of their kids to feel safe and learn to trust. What advice would you share to um, for adoptive parents to aid in building trust with their children? Um, one of the biggest resources that all of the families I work with professionally have to read, it's a book called The Connected Child by Dr. Karen Purvis, who is with Texas Christian University. Um, unfortunately, Dr. Purvis passed away a few years ago, but she's been one of the best resources for families that I've ever seen in the world of adoption, trauma, loss, um, attachment, um, because that loss and trauma creates um, issues with attachment a lot of the time. And so the connected child, and she's got videos on YouTube, all kinds of resources out there for families. So that's kind of the number one resource I say to families. And also to change our expectations sometimes, because if you have had a wonderful experience, if you're already a parent and your children are well-behaved and wonderful and you've had no problems, to not expect the exact same things, maybe adjust your expectations because this child does not have the same starting point as your biological child might have. And so we start from a different point of view where we always look at the need behind every behavior because behavior is communication. So for our kids that have been come from harder circumstances and that have prenatal trauma or early trauma, their brains, how their brain developed is different. And so we have a lot of research that supports this that basically the fear center of their brain is overdeveloped and then the language center of their brain is not quite caught up. So we have a lot of behaviors that come from these kids, like you were saying, that shows that they have, you know, trust, fear, issues with attachment. And so we understand how the brain works. We can actually help our kids better and not take things personally that have nothing to do with us as parents. And so to really educate yourself with attachment parenting and trauma-focused parenting and to be an advocate for your kid in church and school where expectations can be really high and honestly too high for some of our kids that have an overactive amygdala part of their brain. And so I think for families that are going into adoption, any kind of adoption to educate yourself on um, trauma, prenatal trauma, early trauma, and how that affects brain development can help you understand your child better. Because when you birth a child, you learn how to, if you're going to breastfeed, you learn about breastfeeding. You learn about changing a diaper. You learn about taking a baby's temperature. Well, when you adopt a four-year-old from trauma, you need to learn about um, maybe repenetrating and aggression. You need to learn about um, how the brain develops and how it redevelops later on in childhood. And, you know, when a kid hits about 12 or 13 and that second burst of development in the brain happens, how does trauma affect that again later on? And so there's a lot of ways you as an adoptive parent can educate yourself on attachment and trauma. And there's tons of resources out there, but the best starting place I think is the connected child and all the research done by Dr. Purvis. Gosh, Maddie, this is all such good information, so much wisdom. So what would you say to families who are interested in adopting, but have no idea where to start? What's a good starting place for them? I think the first thing to do is just to to pray about it. Um, I don't think that every single family in the world is meant to adopt or foster, but I think everyone can do something to affect orphan crisis and the number of children that are in care in some way, shape, or form. But if you feel like your family, if you're starting to research adoption, I say talk to adoptive families and not just adoptive families in the very early stages, but talk to adoptive families that have kids of several different ages. So you can see what your family is um, capable of taking on. And at least you understand if you don't know that you can do it now, you know the steps later on and you have a really good support system around you. I also think like just logistically the stuff that you have to do, the first thing you need to do is kind of research agencies that work with your area, that do your home studies, that can help you with things um, because adoption can be so different state to state and region to region. I think it's important to um, research your providers too and see one that you're comfortable with. So I, I ask all of my guests, who has been the extraordinary giver in their life? So who comes um, to mind first for you? My daughter's birth mother, number one. Um, mm-hmm. And the fact that she trusted us and um, gave us the biggest gift of our life that anyone has ever, you know, wow. made the willing choice to do. Um, and, and to go a little further to any birth mom I've ever worked with professionally um, getting to be in the hospital room when she signs the permission and the consent to place her child for adoption is um, it's, it's heartbreaking. And I just, there, I have so much respect and honor for birth mothers. Um, you know, I, I know a birth mother counselor that said, you know, she may have made a thousand bad decisions, but up to this point, but she is trying her hardest to make the best one for her child in this moment. And so 
I feel like any birth mother that can make that decision deserves all kind of honor and respect for giving every family that I've worked with the biggest gifts of their life. They, most of our families that come to us come from a place of infertility or loss. Not all of them, but several of them, a large majority have already went down those roads. Um, and I think that birth mothers, they don't have to make this choice. They, they have many options in front of them when they find out they're pregnant. And so working with the women that make that choice daily, like I just am in awe of them. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Well, how about, how can we give extraordinarily to adoptive families? And then also how can we give extraordinarily to birth mothers? So for adoptive families, um, a lot of people thought when you bring a child home, you didn't give birth. So why do you need so much time off? And why do you not, you know, why would they need meals or, and this, the same lines for foster families too. We, we did foster care ourselves for a couple of years. Um, when they get a new placement or a child comes to the home, they need everything that a new family that have a child biologically into their family needs at the beginning. They need meals. They need maybe help with laundry because they're still attaching and bonding to this child which they need to spend a lot of time holding that baby. They need to spend a lot of time adjusting to the new schedule, just like anyone else would. And they also need to be trusted with their child's story. And I think when a family comes home, everyone is very excited and want to know everything about the child than the birth family. When that's really a decision the child should make as an older child or adult, if they want that information shared, because adoption does start with a loss of some kind, there's been some kind of trauma in the history and that should not be everybody's business. <laughs> that should be the child's decision to share that story. I don't think anyone would want one of the hardest things in our life to be shared without our permission. Mm, yeah. So respect adoptive families and give them space in their story, but to also serve them well, just like you would a child, a family that's birthed a child. Even if they adopt a 15-year-old, they're going to need this stuff. Um, so I think really just kind of surrounding them, just like you would a family that gave birth and respecting their boundaries. If they want time to cocoon with that child, drop a meal off at the front door. Cocooning is just kind of a term we use that, especially if you've adopted internationally, that child is basically in their mind. They have no idea who you are. They don't know the language. They're in a totally new place and they're deciding who do I need to attach to? So we don't need 15 people in and out all day. Um, so respecting the boundaries they put in place, but also saying, this is what, instead of saying, what can I do for you? Like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to drop a meal off at your front door. Don't even, I'm not even going to knock here. I'm going to text you when I get there, <laughs> give them the space to say, no, we want you to come in or not. Because that adjustment time, especially for international adoptions, is can be very difficult. Um, and so giving them the space but still serving them well, I think would be huge for adoptive families. And then also to remember that that adoption, it's a one-time act, but it also affects your family forever. So if you adopt a child that is four years old from China, and then six years from now, they're struggling with their, their adoption story. And they've learned everything, and they know everything, and they're kind of struggling, and they need some counseling and family support or the child has to go into residential care or whatever to really support the family. Well, when they say, don't just be like, Oh, you already adopted like 10 years ago. Why are you worrying with this now? Cause adoption can affect your family forever. And so being supportive of families and saying, you know what, that family hasn't been to church in like three months. I bet something's going on, but I'm not going to be nosy. I'm just going to tell them I love them. Um, church can be incredibly hard for adoptive families. It's been a struggle for hours at times because if you have anything going on with sensory processing issues, which a large majority of our kids do, or um, anxiety, which kids that have come from orphanages or from areas of institutionalization where large crowds just really bother them, um, church can be hard. It's loud. It's noisy. Everyone wants to touch you, and church is really hard. And so instead of gossiping and saying, oh, that family's not been to church, say, I bet something's going on. I wonder what I could do for them. And just say hey, can I do something? Can I do something for your family this week? And check in with them because adoption is something that, you know, can affect your life forever. So, Wow. I have learned so much today. <laughs> I am in amazement of God's faithfulness and, and just this, this perspective um, is very new for me. So thank you. And just Maddie, thank you for sharing your story. No, thank um, you for letting me. I am. Um, and I mean this, you are one of the most genuine and kind women I have ever had the privilege to meet. So um, I know listeners are going to be impacted by your testimony and your wisdom. God bless you, friend, and each of you listeners. Thank you so much, Rachel. The Love Offering was created to inspire us to intentionally seek ways to share God's love with a world often marked by the opposite. 
God gives us his love so freely. He simply asks that we believe in him and that we share his love with others. The hope of the love offering is that it starts a chain reaction of loving service that points people to him. It is a pure-hearted, servant-minded approach to living. So where does God have you? Who has he surrounded you with? What stirs your heart? Start there. No act is too big or too small. Let's spur one another on as we share God's love in tangible ways and change the world one love offering at a time. Thank you.